roughly 3,000 years ago, the prophet Isaiah invited all of creation on behalf of God to a party to celebrate the end of violence, the end of death, and the unity of all things. We read these words this morning, this invitation from a human long dead, a promise of an event that we all still long for. It seems sickly ironic that as we read this text, in the same geographic location in which it was first written, we see stark reminders of humanity's collective need for redemption, restoration, and healing. In war, in violence, in clamoring for power by any means necessary, the worst of us is on full display. The invitation sent by Isaiah in Scripture doesn't have a specific date or time, though, right? It does not have a link to directions or an opportunity to sync to your calendar. It's just a promise. The party will be lit, and everyone will be there. And, it, and although it is very, very clear that we are not to a place as a species where we can celebrate that kind of universal unity and peacefully. I think this morning that in the sum of all of our scriptures, we can see glimpses through experiences and circumstances of this miraculous resurrection feast. Psalm 23 is hands down the most familiar psalm, best known for good reason, right? It's lovely. A lot of people recite it, can recite it. Um, it's often read at funerals. It's really lovely. But one of the things that's so wonderful about Psalm 23 is how very realistic it is. It does not say, when we follow God's ways, we will be rewarded with a peaceful existence and never have any issues. That's never happened to anyone throughout the story of God and God's people, and it certainly has not happened to any of us. No. It says, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with me. It says, my enemies are right here, but God is still keeping me nourished. In it, we see glimpses of that eschatological promise from Isaiah. Everything has changed and shifted under our feet, and God is with us. Here, now. Paul wrote his encouragement and invitation from a cell in a Roman prison. As he wrote these wonderful, encouraging words that we all love to read, and we could just put it right on a Hallmark card, couldn't you? Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Can't you just see it in this beautiful script? It probably is on a lot of Hallmark cards, to be honest. As he wrote these beautiful, comforting words, he did it from a place of pure peril. He was not sure if he was going to be released or executed. He sent these words of hope, not from a place of comfort, of like, I have arrived, everyone, but of danger. With that in mind, this hits different. He could easily have written, everything is terrible, save yourselves. He could have said, humanity is doomed, look at where I am, we'll never learn. He could have said, I give up, forget it, look to someone else. But that feast, that promise, the 
one that swallowed death, the feast that allows us to walk through the valley of the shadow and sit down and eat while our enemies glare at us, that supernatural reality of God pouring into him enabled him instead to say, God is near to you as God is near to me, even here. Rejoice. Love. Be gentle. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Now I know a lot of us are like, oh, hold your horses there, Paul. We're professional worriers, okay? I need my worry in my life. It helps me feel like I'm in control of things that I'm not in control of, right? But beloved, we can't stop something by worrying about it. We can't change things by worrying about it. Our worry does nothing but distract us from the moment we inhabit with God. It steals our life, moment by moment. Does this mean that we don't care about what's happening in the world? Absolutely not. The scriptures say, act, care, love, yes. Do justice, work for peace. But don't worry. Relinquish what haunts you to God. And there's a lot to haunt us these days. Your prayers, a far more productive use of your energy. And they will direct you in the way that you should go. Worrying energy does us no good. Worrying energy causes us to make impulsive decisions. Worrying energy causes us to act out of fear rather than love. Worrying energy causes us to hurt ourselves and hurt others. Worrying energy gives us a warped view of what is around us while prayer quiets us. Prayer centers us. Prayer reminds us of what is important. Prayer connects us to God. Prayer opens our hearts connects us to everything, and it gives us the peace that transcends all understanding, even for a moment. Our gospel this morning takes invitation and turns it on its head. I think that I would go to that party rather than be, be taken out. Starts with an invitation to a wedding. This is a parable. Remember, this is not a real historical event. This is a parable that Jesus told. So this king did not actually kill people for not coming to his party. But no one who was invited initially comes, right? Bummer. We've all been there. But the king, the host, made the best of it after his murderous rage. And then went out to the streets and invited anyone and everyone. Now we're talking, right? Now this sounds like gospel. But then something troubling happens. A person is thrown out for not wearing the right outfit. This is where context and history are so crucial, y'all. The first century Middle Eastern culture is not anything like our current culture and context, and so we simply cannot faithfully read scripture without understanding where it comes from, who wrote it, and to whom. So in the first century, hosts of a wedding would provide simple robes for their guests to wear. And this was meant to, for these moments in time, to flatten the social hierarchy 
And and because most of the time in the first century, everybody knew who was who was above everybody else, right? It was a very hierarchical culture, and so it was like you're more important than me. I'm more important than that person. That was kind of how the currency of the day. But but the beauty of weddings was that people were not allowed to operate in that way. It flattened the hierarchical structure, and it was a rare window into the joy of equity and mutuality so that everyone could just be themselves and enjoy. So the guest, who didn't have on a robe, would have been offered a robe, but instead of taking that robe and becoming equal to the rest of the folk of the party, remember all who ended up being there, just any old person came in off the street, um, they were probably trying to flex a little bit and say, listen, I'm not like everyone else here. I want to show my status a little bit. And he was thrown out. Friends, the healing feast that God hosts does not include hierarchy, doesn't include flexing. If we want to be embraced by the peace that transcends all understanding, we need to let go of what we know, of what we think makes us important, of our worries, of our certainties. The invitation to the feast equalizes us and promotes the reign of this invitation, over 3,000 years old, as I said earlier, is even older than that. It's as old as the universe, as old as the breath of God, creation yearning from the beginning toward healing. And then Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection was a salient call to live in this way. Peace, love, mutuality a message to us as we look around us and are so tempted to throw up our hands. In a few minutes, we'll be drawn to the table to enjoy the feast first described in Isaiah. Will there be the finest wine? No, there will not. There will be manischewitz. <laughs> but make no mistake, this is the same meal. It's the meal of inclusion, equity and peace. It is the meal that invites us to lay down what burdens us at the feet of God and embrace an uncertain future. A feast where we're all guests of honor and the ark of the universe is resurrection. Trust God and feast. Amen. Let's stand together and 